Morning, church. I almost forgot to come out. I was dancing in the back. I'm sorry. Uh, so, um, good morning, everyone. We've come to the part in our service where we go through, and as part of our, our summer of worship, we're going through a number of Bible lessons uh, throughout the summer, and we've been focusing a lot on um, the New Testament. Uh, those of you who don't have the training for service books, uh, I believe you can reach out to, um, I believe it's either Gladys Joshua or Maui De La Cruz, and you can get um, information on how to get one. But we're working off of um, a, a book, Training for Service, that has been helping us dig a little bit deeper into the word, um, not just going into kind of what's been written, but just kind of getting the context behind um, what was written, getting information about the culture, the landscape, and all the uh, different background um, information that helps us to better understand kind of the impact of God and what he did in our lives. So um, as we're doing that, we are going to uh, kick off with uh, a quick quiz, as we do every week. Um, so we're going we're gonna to scale it back a little bit, um, and we try to make it as simple as possible. We're going to go and ask, who can name three of the five events of the second year in Jesus' ministry? So in Jesus' second year, who can name three of the five things that Jesus did? And this is the stuff we went over last week. Yes. Yes, he, call, he called his first disciples and called them out to be fishers of men. Great. The Sermon of the, on the Mount, perfect. And someone, uh, anyone else? Yes. Yes, he healed one of the ruler's sons. Perfect. Wow. Give yourselves a round of applause. All right, so we're at halfway. All right, now who can name me three of the events in Jesus' third year of his ministry? Yes. He fed the 5,000, correct. The Transfiguration, yes. And one more. Technically, that is in the third year, but we're going to go through that next. So, <laughs> Actually, that leads us perfectly into um, our lesson for today, um, which is the life of Christ, part three. So just to give a, a quick recap as far as what we've gone, on, gone through so far, um, we've reviewed the fact that the New Testament is made up of three main sections. The earthly life of Christ, um, which we've been focusing on, um, then the beginnings of the church, and then from there the expansion of the apostolic church, um, essentially the apostles spreading the word across the Mediterranean. So for us, for the last few weeks, we've been focusing on Jesus and his earthly life and how he's impacted people around him. We've been focusing on those first three years of his ministry, um, broken out, and the, the list of his life is broken out into um, seven main categories. We've covered the first four, but now we're going to focus on the last three sections, focusing on the last three months of his ministry, then his very last week um, before he died, as it's often referred to as Passion Week, and then we go into the 40 days after he was resurrected. So we're going to go into this in a bit of detail. And just to give you guys a background as far as how Jesus' relationship with everyone in Israel kind of worked. So Jesus was loved at this point by most of the common people throughout Israel. He had been going around teaching and healing people. 
He had been convicting people and being heal- and helping people get a new perspective on what it is to be saved. Right? Up until now, everything's been very rigorous. Right? Everything was rules and regimented. And Jesus was teaching them a new teaching, which was about the heart, which is about their personal conviction on matters. Right? Looking outside and past the superficial, but looking at what really drives people and finding them a, a way to get to God without having to go through all the little rules and kind of uh, trivial things that were put in there for our own good at the time, but were no longer relevant now that he was here. So n- with that, there was one group of people, a couple groups of people, that had a particular issue with that, and that was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And we're about to go into a detail into, into more as far as why they really wanted to challenge Jesus and at this point kill him. Uh, because when he first came, they first just wanted to take him out because of just pure jealousy. Right? They had followings. Every religious leader had followings. And Jesus was taking all of their followers away. And then he was teaching them things that were slightly off of what they were teaching. Right? They were teaching the rules and the regiments because that's what they were following. But their hearts were not in it. And Jesus was calling them out on it. And not only that, Jesus was calling them out on their own hypocrisy. And he was calling them out on their greed and their racism. So Jesus was hitting them in the heart. And because of that, as it kept building from year one through year three, by the time he got to year three, they had gone beyond just dislike and were actively plotting to take Jesus out. So we're going to go into some of the issues that pretty much were the the straw that broke the camel's back for the Pharisees that made them really want to go after Jesus. Starting first with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So as many of you guys know that um, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. He used to hang out with um, Jesus's, um, sorry, with Lazarus's um, family and used to hang out in their house. Jesus was about two, three towns away when he heard that Lazarus was sick. Upon hearing that, now this is Jesus. We had talked uh, about two, three weeks ago that Jesus could have healed him right then and there, but Jesus wanted to go and see his friend. So on hearing that his friend was sick, he makes his way to, um, near Jerusalem to go and visit his friend. On the way, because it's a few days' journey, he finds out his friend had died. By the time Jesus gets there, he had been dead for four days. And Mary tells him, had you been here, he wouldn't have died. And although Jesus knows he has the full power, just feeling the compassion for his friends, he weeps. It's the only time you ever record Jesus actually crying. Well, the first time, to be fair. And here, Jesus goes out to the tomb, has them open up the tomb. Now, at this point, they kind of push, they usually tried to talk him out of it, and then calls out Lazarus, and Lazarus comes out from the dead. At this point, the Pharisees are incensed. Now, the issue is, they're not convicted and amazed. They're frustrated. Because this guy just raised the dead. Now, their issue is, everyone's going to love him. We can't stop this thing from spreading. Right? Their focus is not, a human being who just died is now back up. No, the focus is, he's going to take our popularity away. He's going to take our credit away. Everyone's going to follow him now. Right? That became more important than, what about our families? What about the hope that this man means for us? Right? When the focus was on themselves, they lose sight of the miracle. And that tends to happen to us in our lives sometimes. It happens to me. When I start focusing inwards, I don't always pay attention to all the miracles and things that God are actually putting in my life. 
you know, especially that's how I got here. There were all these things going on. I didn't pay attention to the fact that there was a guy inviting me to church. The church happened to be next to my school, and God had aligned all that stuff for me to get here, right? It wasn't until studying the Bible that I had finally realized, wait, God had been working all these miracles as I was just focusing on me, you know? So Jesus does this and starts to convict the people, the, the common folks, but then... leprosy. So, and as most of you know, back then, leprosy was rarely cured, if ever. Uh, it was pretty much a death sentence. slow and embarrassing death because you get shunned from the community because it's so contagious. Ten of these folks were reaching out to Jesus. Jesus heals them. Out of the ten, one comes back. And they come back praising God. Now take one guess over the past few weeks where that one person Samaria. So now Jesus, to the entire crowd, calls out the fact that this guy, a Samaritan, was righteous. So if you're a Pharisee and Jesus has been calling you unrighteous, suddenly, and then he talked about this good Samaritan, all of a sudden he's bringing up a Samaritan and highlighting how this guy's being righteous. How do, how do you think those Samaritans are feeling? Their egos are being bruised. Because in their mind, they've just been made equal to Samaritans. How dare you? So that started building up more animosity. Then to go move forward, little children were coming to Jesus. The apostles saw that he was tired. And they tried to shun the kids away. Jesus responds back, no, bring the children to me because the kingdom of heaven is theirs to highlight the kind of heart that we need to have and his love for the children. So now to the Pharisees, oh, now, now he's got the kids. right? So it just starts to pile up. And then the last two items that I think were kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for the Pharisees. And I want to go into one in, in a lot more detail, the rich young ruler. So turn with me to um, Luke chapter 18. And we're going to read verses 18 through 27. The Bible reads, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these things I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard them, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone rich who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So here, Jesus hit at the one other thing that was tugging at the heartstrings of the Pharisees at the time. And pretty much everyone. The love of money. The greed. Right? He hit the greed head on. So it wasn't bad enough he was hitting on them on every other angle. He then went after where he felt the last person 
jealous of this guy's heart. And think about it. This guy, and this guy was the perfect example for this. He followed all the technical rules. He didn't break any technical rule. He was technically fine. But the problem is, Jesus doesn't care about the technicalities. He cares about the heart. And when he said, your heart, he called out the fact that the guy's heart was more about the money than about him. It wasn't about the funds. It was the fact that Jesus knew where that guy's heart was. He knew where his priorities were. And he attacked the fact that that was the priority over God. And at that point, if that were not bad enough, Jesus then goes out and meets a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Now, if you guys know the story of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was a short man, but he was also a tax collector. Now, the tax collectors in those days were some of the most hated people anywhere. It's not too uncommon today, but anyway. They were taking money, and a lot of them were cheating people on the taxes. And it was hard for you to do anything about it because they had the Roman government behind them. So if they cheated you, what are you going to do? So they were some of the most hated people. And to have a Jewish tax collector, it was seen as a double betrayal because you're taking from your own Jewish brothers to give to the Romans. So that's how they were seen. So when Zacchaeus climbs up the tree and calls out to Jesus and Jesus to eat at his house, the Pharisees were incensed. How dare you let this betrayer come in? But what was Zacchaeus' reaction? Zacchaeus goes, I'm going to give back everything I've taken that was wrong, and if I've cheated anyone, I'm going to pay you back double. Zacchaeus' heart changed. Right? He had, may have broken some of the technical rules, but his heart changed, and because of his heart changing, he started following God. He started changing his actions. His heart drove his actions. But what the Pharisees saw was, wait a second, he, doesn't want, he calls us out, but he's hanging out with the tax collector. So first we're, we're below Pharisees, so we're, bro, we're below Samaritans. Now we're below this tax collector. Right? You see how the vision gets skewed when it's, when it's about you? Right? They were focusing on themselves, so their vision got skewed. It wasn't, oh, there's grace. He's giving, opening up the door for grace for us. No, it was, where do we rank? Right? Jesus was attacking that sense of entitlement. Right? Jesus was attacking that kind of pride that we all go through. But Jesus was saying, listen, that can't be where your treasure is stored. Right? And at that point, that's when the Pharisees decided that they had to go after Jesus. So from there, we move on to uh, the, his very last week before he resurrected. Um, so at this point... Um, a number of things starts happening. Uh, a week earlier, he gets anointed by Mary, um, which is kind of a foreshadowing of what was to come. Um, Mary, Mary kind of had a, a jar that she had saved for a while that was really expensive um, and poured it on his head. And one person got really offended that that expensive jar was being used on Mary's head. One guess, it was Judas, who was in charge of the money and used to often skim some on the side. So that started paving the way for Judas' betrayal. And then the very next, the, the Sunday before um, Easter, what we know as Easter Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. So this is the area, and I'm, I'm highlighting this to show you the reasoning and why the Pharisees attacked Jesus the way they did. So this is the Sunday before, and if you can see, this is uh, Jerusalem. This is the city. 
that little yellow area, I don't know if it comes out great on the screen, but that area right there, uh, if I can get this laser, yeah, right here. that little area right here, this is where the temple is. That's the actual temple. That's kind of the, the temple court area. Jesus went into the temple and started preaching to the people. And he started teaching them a number of parables, one of them being the, ten, the parable of the ten virgins, which is about being ready and making the change early on and not waiting the, the, to the last hour to change before God comes. At that point, crowds were following him everywhere he went. In fact, if you see this little dot here, up here he healed a leper in the pool of Bethesda. So people already knew about him. When he came in, they were throwing palms on the floor, right? He came in riding on a donkey, and there were palms being thrown, and people were cheering. So imagine you're a Pharisee, and you want to take Jesus down. You know if you do that, you're going to cause a riot. So the Pharisees were concerned because of the landscape. If they did anything inside the walls, if they started everything in the walls, you'd be, you'd cause a panic. And then you know how the Romans handle people who cause a panic in their areas. And they did not want any of that trouble. So they had to plot and figure out a way to get him when he was not in a place, when he was in a place that was a bit more vulnerable. So this helps, I hope this helps put some of that into context. So then from there, Jesus has his last supper with his friends in the, the lower area um, right by where, um, ironically, where Herod lives. Um, so Jesus has his last supper with his colleagues, well, his brothers pretty much at this point because he calls them his brothers now. And this is where you have, we've gotten the tradition of communion. This is where he actually gives them the command to love one another like we love ourselves, right? From there, he goes out to Gethsemane. This is where he has that, that heart-wrenching prayer to decide whether or not he wants to do this. And he concedes that, listen, because his love for us, he's going to do what has to be done. To give us a chance, he's going to continue doing. Now, I can't go into all the details of Jesus' death, just because to go through that, I can't do it justice in the limited amount of time. So if you guys are visiting or you haven't heard the full story, talk to whoever invited you out and ask them to specifically talk to you about that story, um, and they will gladly help you with that. But as we go through this, right, from here, Jesus is arrested outside the city gates. Why? Because if you arrest them outside, the city, if people come in outside, it's much easier because it's hard. You, you have places to go. You have escape routes. You have a way to actually take them. And then you can take them at night back into the city when there are less people to cause a commotion. So it was pretty strategic what the, the Pharisees did. And then he was brought in to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, um, who tried to pass judgment. The only problem is they cannot, as you know, they cannot execute people um, because they were under Roman rule. So at the end of the day, he had to go and face the Romans, and then by Friday, they had crucified him in Golgotha, which is right outside the city, uh, if you can see here. So from there, what we know as Good Friday came to pass, and Jesus had died. Fast forward three days later, they go back to the tomb, two individuals go back to the tomb and see that the stone is rolled back. And they, at first, think it's grave robbers. 
They're like, it's bad enough. They killed him. Now it's grave robbers. All of a sudden, who meets them but Jesus himself? Now, the most amazing part about the resurrection is, according to Jewish law, all you really need is two people to evidence the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Technically, according to Jewish law, the witness of two people is fine. Jesus doesn't do anything at the bare minimum. Instead, he appears ten times to over 500 people. So I've heard a lot, I mean, we've all had these disputes about whether or not it happened. It is hard to trick 500 people. I just want to dispel, like, you can trick one people, you you can trick two people, but 500 is a lot to pull off, right? Especially when half of them knew you, touched you, right? This is not a, a camera trick. They were literally there. They had known him for three years, right? So... I want to go through a few of his appearances, and there's one I'm going to go into through um, in particular. So, um, first he appears to those two, then he appears to ten of the eleven remaining disciples, because by this time Judas had died. There's one notable person who's missing, who is Thomas, who pretty much says, "I'm not going to believe this. Listen, unless I see the holes in his hand, the hole that they put in his side when I saw them stab him, I'm not believing a thing." So then. In John chapter, uh, actually in the very next chapter in, um, John, in Luke 24, they go and Jesus comes back and goes, okay, hey Thomas, put your, hand in my, put your hand in my hand, put your hand in my side. So not only did Jesus show that he was back, he kept the scars as a reminder. Moving forward, we go to one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, and um, in John chapter 21, and we're going to read that really quickly. And we're going to read verses 1 through 17. It says, Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, The sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples, the disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed him on the boat, towing their net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they had landed... They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This is now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. You know, this is one of the most convicting yet encouraging scriptures in the Bible because it shows that God is always willing to bring you back. Think of it. Peter screwed up in almost every possible way here. While, he was, while Jesus was getting arrested, Peter cuts off a person's ear. Then Peter denies Jesus three times. Then after hearing Jesus has actually resurrected from the dead, Peter doesn't want to know what to do, so he tries to go back to his old life of being a fisherman. And Jesus comes back and calls him out the exact same way he called him out the first time and brings him back. But first, Jesus checks where his heart is at. Right? The great thing about Jesus and his love is he's not after our actions, although the actions follow the heart. But he wants the heart first. If our hearts are right, our actions will follow. Right? Throughout Jesus' life and throughout all of his uh, appearances, because afterwards he then appears to 500 people and he appears to the 12 two more times, at least two more times. In total, he appears about 10 times. So throughout the next 40 days, Jesus goes from place to place to place, to place, to place, encouraging the people who were suffering their hearts because he had been away, inspiring everyone to let them know that anything is possible, including their own salvation. Jesus went literally to the ends of the earth and outside the earth just to get our souls a chance. All that was done not with no guarantees that we'll actually follow him. And all he ended up asking for in return is our hearts. So guys, in conclusion, I just want to review what we had gone through. Um, so over the past, last three months of his life, Jesus went through persecution while he was helping people. He had to be executed for doing no wrong, but came back, well, allowed himself to die, and resurrected just to give us a chance for a relationship with him. I hope the, the context of this helps us to get kind of the gravity of the situation. You know, and it's hard to describe on, on, on mere uh, kind of PowerPoints, but the fact of the matter is, right, Jesus lays out all this so that the future generations like us can have a chance to have a relationship with him. So guys, um, that's our lesson for today. Um, I believe Amadi's going to come up with uh, a few uh, other announcements. But guys, um, our homework, uh, again, I have to leave you with that. Um, read chapter 21, and then we're going to go through that, I believe, next week. If we don't have many, we put Amari will confirm. But please do read chapter 21, because the next part is when the church really starts, um, even for yourselves, to continue your learning. All right, guys, thank you, and have a great day.